You're listening to Out of the Box, a place for marketers to get inspired, get going, and break out of the box. Welcome to Out of the Box. I'm Dan Feldstein, Director of Marketing at IronSource, and this week we're fortunate to speak to a duo of powerhouse marketers. Today we're speaking with Ashley Luong and Jack Ricciardi, who are on the account management team at leading independent digital agency 3Q. Thanks for joining us today. Happy Great to be here. Uh, Ashley and Jack, your teammates at 3Q, supporting growth for some very notable clients. It would be great to start if you could tell our listeners about a little bit about 3Q and then a bit about yourselves and how you found yourselves in your current roles. Yeah, so I can take that one. Um, so 3Q is a full-service growth marketing agency. Um, we're one of the largest independent uh, digital marketing agencies, and uh, we offer you know a full suite of services uh, with expertise in paid media, uh, creative, SEO, decision sciences, and just you know general digital strategy. Um, and as far as how I you know made my way here. Um, to be quite frank, I, I didn't even really have a full understanding of what growth marketing you know, really was when I first started out at 3Q, but uh, I knew that I was looking for something um, where you know, it would be sort of that balance between you know, creative and then also just tapping into you know, the analytical skills that I wanted to hone in on as well. Um, and ultimately, I, I really just had a lot of opportunities to learn, you know, and grow over the years that I've been here. So 3Q has been just absolutely, you know, the perfect place for me to really kickstart my career. Yeah, I think kind of off that note for me uh, as well, Dan, um, just moving from I finished up school about uh, a year ago in 2019. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to Northeastern and take advantage of their co-op program. Uh, which allows you to have two six-month internships full-time uh, with various marketing uh, companies and wh- whoever's in your actual field. Um, so I was fortunate enough to actually have two years of experience uh, coming out of university. And uh, particularly at my last opportunity, um, I had a chance to have an exit interview with my CMO and just talk about, you know, at his age, very successful man, what would you do? Uh, what would you tell yourself at your age looking back now? Um, you know, challenges, things like that. He, he came to me with this idea of a T-shaped marketer, um, which essentially just takes all the views of a full stack marketer, uh, especially within digital marketing, having aspects of all those different areas, um, and then finding one that you really want to hone in on uh, and be an expert in. So having that base knowledge and then finding one that you're really interested in, um, such as social media marketing or email marketing, and, and really pushing forward towards that. So my goal immediately coming out of that position um, was to just find a place, find a find a company that can really foster this base knowledge growth. Um, I had some experience, a little bit social media marketing, a lot in email marketing, um, and and just wanted to really broaden that approach more. Uh, and 3Q seemed like an amazing place to do so. They offer incredible trainings. Um, the first month and a half, I would say, you're really just on with trainings. You get a full grasp um, of search, of uh, social media, uh, a lot of different aspects. So. 3Q was the ideal place for me to follow and pursue that goal further. That's great. Um, and I think we'll, we'll get into some of that. You, you tease some of that advice mm-hmm. for younger marketers. I think we'll get into that later in the podcast. But uh, just rounding out, are there specific types of clients that, uh, that 3Q focuses on and that your team focuses on in particular? Uh, yeah, sure. So I can take this one. 
Um, so specifically, uh, we work with like a very large range of clients as a whole for our agency. Um, this ranges from like large enterprise clients uh, all the way down to um, like startups and, and smaller firms. Uh, Ashley and I specifically uh, work on the mobile app marketing side for one of our uh, largest enterprise clients. And I guess one last question about about 3Q generally is, you know, what would you say sets 3Q apart from some of the other large established agencies in the marketplace? A couple things here. So, you know, I feel like a lot of companies, you know, they they will display some type of culture um, or like as being like something to, to really bring in people on recruiting. I think um, most places you get there, you know, they have that foosball table no one ever uses. Uh, you do your walk around and it's and it's just things that, you know, the beanbag chairs, all that vibe, but no one uses it. It's it's not really their culture. It's just more of a facade. I would say that 3Q really empowers that a lot more. Uh, you know, they have community initiatives. Um, they have regular uh, like regional things they do with their own offices, um, appointed people for cultures in those offices, uh, but that actually drive it home on a regular basis. So I would, I would say culture is a huge thing at 3Q, um, a lot more so than I've seen at other agencies and other uh, organizations. And I would say also that the client base really stands out. I mean, we've worked with some of Silicon Valley's like uh, largest startups coming out um, and, and also some of their more accomplished companies coming out of that region too. Yeah. Sounds and great. I would also add that, um, you know, I hear of a lot of our clients um, being referrals from like existing clients of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think once we do sort of, you know, bring those clients in and, and really show them just the quality of the service that we're able to provide them, you know, um, being strategic and and really just dedicating ourselves, you know, to their brand and to their marketing programs, um, the clients really recognize that. And, you know, through word of mouth, we're really able to grow our client base that way. Sometimes the best clients are the ones that, uh, you know, come from existing good clients, mm-hmm. right? For the meat and potatoes of our conversation today, I'm I really excited to talk to you both about um, what we're calling the dirty world of data and measurement. Uh, always, a, always a timely topic. Uh, you know, l- let's start, I guess we could start with the positive. When you're working with clients and they're getting started with running UA, um, or you're, you know, you're helping onboard a client that might already be running it, but isn't running it optimally, you know, what are the first things that clients need to do to get measurement set up correctly? Yeah, I would say the, uh, the first thing, especially when working with a client, um, overall with that relationship, it's alignment. You know, you need to have consistent alignment. You really need to understand their goals and then find ways after that to, to offer suggestions. So I would say following that note, um, getting in order KPIs, uh, these key performance, um, you know, metrics, getting getting these together, uh, aligning with your client on what that means to them, exactly what they want to drive conversion wise, um, and then assigning some type of LTV and overall value to what these conversions mean. Um, some of that can come, you know, nitty, it can be more nitty or gritty, looking at different regional aspects, um, you know, across different OSs, uh, determining exactly what that very particular segment of user would be in value, um, or it might be a little more broad to the client. Um, but all of this needs to be uh, created as like a baseline before you even jump into to looking at the data of UA. Um, and then I would say following that, you want to set up some type of regular cadence and reporting automation that aligns these KPIs, these conversions um, to the LTVs on a daily basis. Uh, something that you can review alongside with your client, um, keep that alignment going, 
uh, and also um, determine to them that you are, in fact, driving value for them. Uh, and I think uh, Ashley can speak a little bit more to how that you integrate with an MMP and actually bring that reporting process to life. Yeah, that um, the MMP is always the first thing that comes to my mind, you know, when we're talking measurement. Um, I would say, you know, if you're just getting started with running UA, I mean, and the first off, just, you know, have an MMP. Um, I am just a huge advocate for, you know, having a, a single platform where you can aggregate uh, cost, you know, performance metrics, especially if you're looking at more like down funnel events and wanting to get sort of a full scope uh, of what your program's looking like uh, for analysis and whatnot. But you know, building on top of that, I also think it's important to pick the right MMP for you and your team and your program, right? Because ultimately, the MMPs out there, they'll mostly achieve the same thing. Um, they have similar capabilities. Um, but what my approach to it is, you know, think outside the box a little bit, make sure to consider things like, you know, what does the uh, dedicated team slash resources on their end look like? You know, will they be very involved in in partnering with you and working with you to ensure that things run smoothly or things such as, you know, what is the usability of their dashboard look like? Um, you know, with the MMP relationship, I just feel that it's so important to make sure that you're thinking like big picture and thinking long term because you do end up relying on that partnership so strongly when it comes to uh, ensuring that you have a good measurement process in place. That that does certainly make sense. I think you know what I heard a lot of from both of you is is that there are certain opportunities for things to maybe go wrong if they're not set up right from the start. So I was wondering again where have you seen you know clients or or other companies you know mess up on setting up those LTVs from the beginning or or maybe you know is there a horror story you can share about um not working with the right MMP that might be kind of educational for listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think just off of that note, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that can be made um, early on, uh, kind of teased on this too earlier, was just like this alignment with KPIs and LTVs. Um, so it's not necessarily like how they're set up. Um, it's usually on the client side when they do LTVs. Uh, definitely agency and, you know, like different partnerships across our agency, um, we've built out LTV models for them. Uh, but usually you're dealing with an enterprise client, someone who's already very established. They already have these LTVs built in. Um, so I would say the biggest thing there then is really aligning with your clients on uh, what drives that value. Uh, and then also aligning with them um, a little bit more on like the intricacies of reporting logic that you might set up. Um, this is where uh, we've personally seen like some type of um, give and take, some type of uh, discrepancies we've seen between our client is when they try to put together uh, a source of truth um, is what they like, quote unquote, source of truth. Um, but just something that uh, they're not as in tune with the way that we're looking at reporting, you know, as we get more granular with campaigns and ad sets and even down to the ad level, um, there can be some intricacies as long with uh, reporting logic that would lead your client if they were to pull a report from MMP to potentially get data that's looking a little different from um, how yours would after data ingestion, after going through whatever um, reporting software you're using, such as Tableau. 
So I think aligning on exactly how you're filtering through their data, exactly how you're aligning conversions uh, to these end LTVs uh, is really important. And you'll avoid a lot of mistakes going forward uh, with discrepancies between you and your client. Yeah, Dan, as you as you mentioned, you know what I think what Jack and I are both really trying to hammer home here is um, to make sure you get the setup right or, you know, as right as it can be um, at the beginning, um, because that that ultimately will lead to less issues, less data discrepancies down the road. Um, and from from like an MMP perspective, you know, as Jack mentioned, and as I, I had mentioned earlier as well, um, it is so important to have that MMP be your, your source of truth. Um, but I think that a mistake that, you know, can be made on the client side sometimes is uh, just not not having a healthy level uh, of skepticism, you know, when it comes to to your data, you know, even if even if your MMP is your source of truth, and you know, you want to just believe that the data is just accurate the way it is, um, I I think it's it's very beneficial to uh, just always have a little bit of a crit- of a critical eye uh, when it comes to your data because you know things can go wrong, right? Techno- technical issues arise. Um, so just because you you trust that the MMP can be you know your trustworthy source uh, of truth when it comes to measurement for your for your program, um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be you know questioning when when data looks off and um, just always sort of keeping on your feet and and be sure to think critically when it comes to uh, the data that's being reported to you. No, that's great. Uh, you know, I think. I've been in the industry for a while and I've, I've seen my own examples of horror mm-hmm. stories where like you have a day where a partner doesn't report any data or, you know, two parties have a discrepancy that mm-hmm. seems completely, uh, wild. How do you, as a, as a kind of trusted partner to your clients and, uh, or, you know, internal clients or whatever, like, how do you navigate those conversation when, when something goes wrong? Yeah, I can, I can speak a little bit to this one. Um, in my beginning roles here at 3Q uh, on this team, I was uh, very close to the reporting side. Um, it's a way that we just get like encompassed and like bring us up through the account, gets you really in the weeds and actually knowledgeable of it. Um, so I would say one of the things that, that, uh, we've set up moving forward with this is one, you need to make sure you get ahead of these issues, right? So you have to uh, be in a sense that you're finding these first before the client does. Um, that's always a bad look if the client is finding a data a data problem or some type of discrepancy um, that you yourself haven't noticed. And then you have to back trail, uh, take time to get back to them. That's, that's never a good look as we're meant to be thought leaders, right? They're, they're hiring us to be these thought leaders. Um, so I think one good point there is getting ahead of it. And, and one good way we've be, uh, become a lot better at getting ahead of it was uh, we had regular QA checks from each channel owner looking into our main data source, uh, making sure they, uh, on a daily basis, this aligns correctly with our UI. You know, it takes a quick five, 10 minutes of your day. Um, but even a step further than that, what we've gone to do is actually set up automated alerts within our uh, data software that we're using. So our database, which would be um, Tableau right now. So we'll send actual email alerts uh, to different channel owners um, and to the account as a whole. Uh, noting when something like weird is happening, like a 20% decrease in, uh, you know, like activations for our app product, um, despite no changes being made on the platform, you know, and just aligning with those owners to see exactly what would be alarming. And then that way, even though, you know, data issues, like you said, Dan, they're going to happen, right? It's it's 
uh, not avoidable necessarily, but um, as long as we can be ahead of it, get those alerts early on, and then you control the messaging and also can think of ways to move forward and then present that to the client, giving them an actionable response. Diving into that, you know, you, you alluded to the client really having a having a holistic view of, of understanding what to trust and and having a, a little bit of skepticism when when they look at some data. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, we know that some some media partners are better at uh, reporting data than others, uh, or their accuracy might be better than others. How do you talk to your clients about about weighing that reputation and and developing that skepticism um, when they're making buying decisions? I would say that is is definitely that holds a lot of weight uh, for us when we're making buying decisions. Um, for me, you know, just that reputational element surrounding what they're reporting and data accuracy uh, capabilities are. It boils back down to you know transparency and how transparent this media partner is willing to be, um, you know, in order in order to have that partnership. So when I say transparency, I mean you know is the media partner willing to share publisher info with us? You know, can we get the exact name and bundle ID of the app that you know this ad was served on? You know, at this time. Um, if they're, you know, a DSP running on multiple uh, inventory sources, are they willing to share the name of the exchanges, you know, the exact exchanges that, you know, we will be buying from, you know, for our program? Some some publishers, or rather, some some media partners just are not as willing uh, to do that. You know, we've had some media partners be unable to or unwilling to share impression data at the publisher level, for instance, um, and things like that uh, really just come up as red flags for us sometimes. It doesn't inherently mean that, you know, anything sketchy or suspicious is going on, but we definitely err on the side of, you know, transparency is is key. Um, and I think it's so impactful for building the trust in the, in the relationship that we have with the media partner. So when it comes to, you know, prioritizing which media channels we want to actually work with and buy from, um, we definitely lean towards, you know, the ones that are willing to, to work with us and, and to be as transparent as they possibly can. And that's a, a kind of a great lead into what I wanted to ask you next, which is, um, you know, when you're looking at diversifying uh, your portfolio of media partners and evaluating new partners or vetting them, uh, what are some of those criteria? What does that process look like? Uh, what besides transparency is really important to you when you're looking to uh, innovate around media partnerships? Yeah. Well, transparency, I would say, is definitely number one. Um, but outside of that, uh, one of the first things that you know I'm looking for when I'm doing my research or when I'm in these you know intro meetings with media partners for the first time, um, the first thing is just, you know, what is, what is this, what is their value prop, right? What makes them unique? Um, what can this media partner offer us that, you know, we don't already have? Um, really looking to understand, you know, what their product is really about. What's like the one thing that they, you know, are, are driving home um, when it comes to their product. And if there is a, you know, something unique, right? If there's something differentiating this media partner um, that is currently missing from from our current media mix, um, that definitely sort of 
elevates them to like go to this next step of, okay, we're going to continue, you know, talking to them. We're going to continue exploring this uh, as an option. And outside of that, I think this, you know, this might sound a little bit superficial, um, but I am a huge, huge, huge advocate for um, basing some of these decisions on just how genuinely likable um, are the people that you're going to work with. And what I mean by this is, you know, I think it's hard to tell, obviously, like at the beginning stages in in intro calls, in the intro stages and whatnot. Um, but you can definitely pick up on things like, you know, is is their team just being, you know, overly salesy? Are they trying to come across as, um, or rather, are they coming across as simply trying to sell you their product? Or do they seem to be, you know, authentically, you know, dedicated to 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 working with you, to to growing the relationship with you and your brand? All in all, right, like we spend so many waking hours of our life uh, at work. Um, and I think it's really important to, to you know, actually enjoy working with um, the people at work. And I think that this is something that ends up holding more weight um, in terms of like maintaining the, 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 the strength and the healthiness of the relationship in the long term than people really think of, um, you know, at the beginning when they're just so focused on, you know, what does this media partner's product look like? How can, you know, they add value to my program? That's what gets you in the door, uh, in in my personal opinion. Um, but really, it's it's developing, you know, and fostering that relationship uh, with the partner over time um, that really leads to long term success. Absolutely, and I I certainly couldn't agree more. I think from from the other side and from other places I've been, it's it's abundantly clear that this is still a trust business and um, many new entrants want to come in product first and really uh, believe that they can win only by having, you know, a best in class Mm -hmm. product. They lose sight of the fact that this is a, you know, ongoing relationships with partners for years and years and, um, you know, that long-term trust and partnership is, is essential to, to success. Um, you know, it's certainly something we value here and it's great to hear that from the client side as well. Um, on that note, I think, you know, product and, and there's a lot of sameness mm-hmm. in tech and media, but can you share an example, even at a high level of a, a win your team has had when you brought in a new media partner, like, you brought someone unique in and, and it wound up, you know, having a significant impact on the success of the account. Yeah. I mean, not, not to be <laughs> biased here um, because I know we are on an iron source podcast, um, <laughs> but really the first one that came to mind uh, for me was uh, iron source aura. Um, really the, the entire concept of, you know, the out of the box experience, um, intel- intelligent preloads uh, that has always been so, you know, interesting to me. Um, there's not quite as many, you know, players in the space that offer a product like that. So, you know, the unique factor, the differentiator, that's already there. Um, and I, I also think it's one that not many mobile app advertisers have tapped into or have even really explored tapping into. Um, but for us, you know, working with uh, with Aura, we, we did find success um, working with them. And it, it was just so cool to 
you know, really be doing something different. It, it their product um, and, and the way that our whole program with them worked really was just so different than um, all the other channels in our media mix, which were, you know, more just traditional like ad networks or, or DSPs. Um, so yeah, really awesome partnership with them. Um, definitely shout out to Wendy and Tony um, for being the awesome partners, right? That really made yep. that relationship even more special. Well, uh, you can't see, but I'm blushing. <laughs> Thank you for, for the kind words. Uh, you know, I think at a high level, it is nice to have something that is differentiated and adding that into the mix instead of one, you know, incrementally one more social network or one more DSP, mm-hmm. right? Like it just d- diversifies and, and finds new opportunities, I think, to connect with, with users. Um, and Jack, I wanted to to ask you a couple questions, kind of along the line of, of portfolio diversification, mm-hmm. and that brings you challenges because every time you add something that is truly new, you need creative that that works on that channel. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you manage creative at scale? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the baseline things you have to do. Um, is really just take a look at all of the channels you're running on and even like proposed ones like you mentioned, like bringing on a new partner. Um, Baseline, you need a checklist of all the dimensions that are needed uh, per each channel and also per each placement available within that channel. Now, you may not want to run on every placement, um, but it's essential to have those dimensions breaking out just in case, you know, something you want to test. Maybe that placement in the future gains a lot of traffic. Um, and becomes a lot more useful just in the industry as a whole. So something you want to be ready to capitalize on when that's available. Um, And then I think also communicating these checklists to your client, uh, as well as noting which dimensions can be interchangeable between channels. Um, uh, uh, One thing that we've noticed, uh, especially going down the creative process, um, although 3Q Digital has a a very uh, like full stack creative team, um, very accomplished individuals, uh, our specific client um, and a lot of enterprise clients will already have their own creative team that they want to work with. Um, as amazing as that can be, uh, there can be some bottlenecks. Uh, so understanding that some dimensions can be interchangeable between channels. Um, maybe if you're bottleneck for creative, you can take some creative from one channel that has a similar placement uh, dimension as something you're running on. For example, like Google UAC might have a similar placement size as um, or dimensional size as Facebook would. Um, so just just some quick notes that like could be really helpful in that process. Um, I think another big thing, uh, just moving off of placements, um, is understanding how your users are engaging with different placements within that creative. Um, so using like, for example, um, within Google's UAC product, uh, looking at like the difference between like using text ads and display ads within there. Um, if you think about it with uh, like text ads or, for example, let's say search versus display, right? So with search, you know, your user, the way they're engaging with that product, they have a very high intent for what they want to do. Um, they know exactly what they want. And you want to you want to meet that uh, with an ad that that meets that messaging for high intent and drives them directly to exactly, you know, whether it's a brand thing or conversion, uh, exactly where you need them to be. Um, however, if you're running like a basic display ad, uh, you got to understand that your user's going to have limited intent, if not like any intent at all. So keeping that in mind, you're going to want something that's a lot more engaging, um, potentially something that's a little more educational if your brand isn't really well known or doesn't really have that reputation. 
Um, so just different things to consider with that portfolio di diversification as well um, and bouncing off of placements a bit more. Uh, and I think one last thing as far as diversification of your portfolio, just noting which uh, channels um, are influenced the most by in the flux of new creative and creative optimization. Uh, so, for example, some channels that might be a lot more text heavy, a lot more copy heavy, uh, those ad fatigues may take like a lot less time. Uh, so it would make more sense for you to focus your effort on something that might have a lot more ad fatigue, for example, like static images on Facebook. Got it. Can you, is there like an example you could talk about? Mm -hmm. I think like, uh, you know, is there a specific campaign where you found that a, a certain approach to creative optimization really impacted the outcomes? Yeah, sure thing. I think, um, the, just as a baseline, it's, it's really great to get a, a very granular level of detail for your creative data. Um, I think one thing that has helped us out a lot is being able to standardize this granularity across all of your assets. Uh, what I mean by that is being able to pick apart your creative assets to have um, to look at things such as like messaging theme, CTAs, text overlay, um, even some more intricate stuff like text count or like the mix of keywords you're putting in that text overlay. Having access to that data and then being able to link that to backend conversions um, and even more down funnel events is, is key in, in really um, enhancing your ability to, to do these optimizations. Um, so bouncing off of that, one thing, one key thing that we did uh, was with one of our Facebook ads. Um, so just as a, as a note here as well, uh, we haven't seen like one particular ad that's really blown it away. You know what I mean? Uh, something that's like increased performance dramatically. Uh, it, you can see that obviously, but it's definitely more of a rare occurrence when you already have like a, a pretty strong social campaign going. Um, so you're, you're more likely to see like these gradual uh, increases uh, in performance, um, even though they may be significant, uh, but just nothing like that was like, you know, huge popping out, like to answer your question, Dan. Um, but so one, one example we can talk about, about implementing campaign and implementing these data insights uh, was through uh, something we had run through Facebook. Um, so we had noticed that uh, we had a broader audience and broken that down into different segments, depending on uh, the user's activity within our app. Uh, as well as like the frequency of that activity. So, you know, you got daily users, weekly, monthly, uh, breaking that a little more apart. Um, and in doing so and having this access to the creative granularity, we were able to see uh, exactly which aspects of our creative assets were linking up differently across these segments. Um, so based off of that, we could see top performing, uh, you know, like CTAs, for example, top performing keywords that resonate a lot more with uh, different segments than they did with other segments of activity and frequency um, within that user base. Uh, so driving that, we were able to put together a new campaign, uh, you know, very segmented towards these audience groups, really doubling down on the top performers there, as well as providing suggestions um, on what those uh, top performers had within their creative mix and how um, our client can utilize the creative team to make similar assets and keep fluctuating those against the top performers. Um, so that was something, again, where we didn't see like immediately off the bat, like 100% increase in conversion rate or something, you know, but it was definitely like a gradual gain week over week and something that we contributed to that gradual gain. That's great. I, you know, I'm curious, mm -hmm. do, do you find that you're able to transfer insights about what's working from up between platforms or have, have some of these channels become so mature that like that the best practices, right? Like the optimization at that work keyword level on Google, like 
can't even transfer that to Facebook anymore. What what have you seen there? Right. So that's kind of the interesting and um, kind of intriguing part of this too, Dan, uh, and creative optimization. Um, that's often like I feel like a challenge in this industry as a whole, uh, especially when you talk about portfolio diversification, right? Just trying to find those common insights with your user base. Um, I think an important thing to recognize here um, which I had slightly touched on earlier, but basically that your users are going to interact a lot differently between these products. Um, so like someone on Facebook is going to act a lot differently than when they see a display ad coming from Google UAC. Um, so there are some call-outs you can make. Uh, as far as like keyword mix, uh, for example, you could link like the keywords you're using um, and trying to find which ones are resonating the most with your audience. Uh, you can link that to, for an example, text overlay on like your static Facebook assets. So maybe the text that's coming in on your static Facebook assets, uh, you can align on those individual words and see what the groupings of those words. And when, uh, for example, if like free comes up the most or like, um, I don't know, whatever, whatever's an actionable thing for whatever product you're trying to push, uh, maybe that word in particular resonates a lot more across all of your channels. And maybe might be something you want to introduce in copy um, or in text, uh, like the static text, um, and like the actual text overlay in a lot of your creative. So I think there are some key things you can pull apart that match across all channels. Um, but also keeping the caveat that, you know, users are going to interact and engage differently, uh, depending on what they're served and who they're served by. That, that makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. Um, so I would love to pull it back from this has been incredible. I like the level of insight around some of these, some of these really detailed decisions is hopefully going to be really uh, valuable to our listeners. And I'd love to kind of wrap it up by going back to that thirty thousand foot view and say, um, you know, certainly it's been a crazy year so far. We're only halfway <laughs> into it. Um, as you're helping clients navigate this new world, like what are some of the biggest trends you've seen emerge in the last three to six months? I uh, I think saying it's been a crazy year is almost a little bit of an understatement um, at this point. Um, but yeah, definitely crazy stuff going on in the world right now. Um, I would say a, a big trend I've noticed is, you know, obviously people are, are staying home a lot more often now. Um, and and we as human beings are, are social creatures by nature, right? So when that you know, physical restriction to, you know, connecting with people and connecting with um, sort of the, the outside world um, is, is restricted, uh, we naturally, you know, push ourselves further towards uh, like social digital outlets. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, what that means is, you know, having a, an increased uh, user engagement uh, across, you know, various social platforms and social channels and and really sort of reprioritizing um, ad spend um, towards those types of channels. Um, one that comes to mind for me immediately is TikTok, you know, which I have not personally tapped into as a user uh, quite yet, but I know that it's been, you know, quite the trend uh, amongst a, a range of, of age groups and demographics, honestly, um, especially in light of um, sort of the, the quarantine and, and the, the restrictions that have been implemented, you know, across our country uh, so far this year. Yeah. And I think uh, also touching on that, actually made some great points. Um uh, another big part that we're seeing, too, is just this increased emphasis um, as a whole from users uh, into more of this like this realm of virtue signaling. Uh, so Ashley touched on this, but just, you know, we're social creatures. And in a crazy time like this, um, 
you know, it, we need to find ways to connect with people and ways to, to keep connecting with people. And I think a lot of people are, are taking the avenue of social media, which makes sense. Um, and also just given the emphasis of like our uh, sociopolitical situations, um, the, the different things that have been arising, it, it's been more important for individuals to, to virtue signal their in, intent and connection to these things. Um, and I think from a from an agency standpoint or industry standpoint, it's also important for companies to then move with their user base and align themselves with these socially conscious conscious uh, content and um, drive home the fact that they are they are aligned with their user base as it becomes more of a relevant and important thing to their user base as a whole. Got it. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I all I all I can say that you know values really matter more than ever probably what uh, going into into the rest of the year what are you both optimistic about um well dan you and i um had touched on this very briefly um you know at the prior to to recording today but um you know apple has sent just absolute shockwaves um throughout the industry with uh their recent announcement uh, about the iOS 14 uh, update, the um, that will be coming uh, later this year. Um, you know, f- for those who might not be familiar, um, the biggest part of this update that has really just gotten people in the industry in a frenzy is um, that with this update, uh, iOS users will you know have to explicitly opt in to having their device being tracked um, for advertising purposes, and that this opt-in will have to happen on uh, an app by app basis. Um, and this is really turning, you know, our world upside down, um, particularly in regards to to measurement and tracking, right? And just a big question is, you know, what does this exactly mean for iOS app programs uh, moving forward? And I think it's still early, right? Like people, the, the big players in the space, like we're all still trying to figure out how exactly we're going to pivot. Um, but I'm optimistic that, you know, as sort of scary and, and challenging and, and disruptive as this, you know, announcement, you know, makes us feel, um, we're, you know, we're an industry chock full of, of, of just brilliant, uh, innovative minds. And I'm definitely optimistic that, um, we will be able to pivot and, and we'll be able to, you know, move forward in a way that, um, does not just, you know, obliterate iOS app programs moving forward. I would say too, this was, a this is definitely a hard question, right? <laughs> you think about you think about how wild this year has been, and you think into the second half, um, and you know you, you see optimistic, and I, I feel like a lot of people aren't necessarily in that mindset. Um, but I think there's some really good callouts. I, I think just one, the higher rates of engagement for the industry uh, as far as social media, uh, there's been a lot more emphasis on it, a lot more traffic coming through, um, and I think further along that point too. Um, the fact that advertisers are having to focus a lot more on um, a kind of, I would say, like benevolent content, uh, content that aligns again with this virtue singling, again with these values of their user base. Um, I feel like it brings marketing into, as a whole, digital marketing into more of a, a positive light. Um, it, it allows advertisers to also make impact along with their campaigns, as well as being successful. Um, so, you know, that's something I'm optimistic for. I'm optimistic to see where that trend goes and, you know, if we can stay more on this connection to the user base, uh, as well as, as continuing to be successful on these platforms. Yeah. You know, I, I really wanted to ask this question because I think it's so easy to get caught up. I think we all need 
some motivation to be optimistic and positive. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, Jack, earlier you talked a little bit about the guidance you had gotten from a CMO that you had yep. worked with. You know, would you both say in that vein of optimism and innovation, this might be a leading question, mm-hmm. but uh, do, you, do you feel like it's still a good time to be a marketer or to get into marketing and growth as a career? Yeah, I think it's a great time. Um, as far as digital marketing, uh, I think you couldn't come in at a better time in any point of history. Uh, I think one of the great things about digital marketing, you can have that formal background, you can get your business degree, um, or you know, if you just want to start your own business and you and you want to learn the basics of it, um, there is so much information. There's so many tools. There's so many uh, classes you can take online that are free, um, and and really learn the basis of how to drive growth, how to drive revenue, um, and and acquisition for whatever you're trying to do. So I, I think there's never, personally, I think there's never been a better time to get into digital marketing. Um, but if it, you want to make the sole uh, reason of, of your life, you know, like your career is like at least half your life, um, you, you should have some passion for it too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very clear that um, the industry, it, it's still relatively new um, and it, it definitely is ever evolving. And um, you know, if you're looking into getting looking into uh, getting into like growth marketing, um, and you you want something that you know really keeps you on your toes and and never gets boring because mm-hmm. you know things are always changing. Um, I definitely say say go for it. Um, you know, there's always going to be a need for 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 new minds um, to come in and and to innovate. And uh, I would say, yeah, I agree with Jack. It, it really is just there is no better time to to mm-hmm. try to explore that. I I definitely hear that. I can say, having been in this a long time, I'm not going to say how many <laughs> years, but I think I've never seen it as um, as as evolving rapidly as it is mm-hmm. right now. Uh, so we always like love to wrap this up with uh, a question we ask all our guests, which is. Going back to the name of the podcast, Out of the Box, what is the most out-of-the-box marketing you've ever done or, you know, as a team personally or that you've kind of seen done within an organization? Okay, well, I mentioned TikTok uh, just a couple moments ago. Um, <laughs> the one that comes to mind for me is uh, Elf Cosmetics, uh, hashtag Eyes, Lips, Face uh, TikTok campaign. Um, Dan, if you're not familiar, uh, Elf Cosmetics, they they produced uh, like an original song or, or, or jingle or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it um, <laughs> like specifically for, for this TikTok campaign um, that they launched. And um, it was, you know, a hashtag challenge sort of thing. So it was just absolutely insane. The you know amount of just like user engagement they were able to drive by making this very, you know, viral, very like easily spreadable and like popular sound and a trend uh, on TikTok, which is, you know, quite a relatively new um, and still like adapting social platform for many people. Um, I, I just thought it was, you know, so, so awesome what they were able to do with that. They were the first like big brand that I had heard of, of really seeing large scale success um, with uh, TikTok ads. So that's the one that comes to mind for me. I just, I think they, they really hit it home um, on all fronts. Yeah, I think for me, uh, this happened about, um, I want to say like a few years ago, but it's just always been such a, 
<laughs> such an amazing example in my mind of uh, just like benevolent marketing and then how you can shift that into actually driving conversions. So Domino's ran a campaign called Paving for Pizza uh, a few years ago. Um, they started it and I believe they're still continuing it. Um, but essentially what they're doing is, is devoting some type of budgeting, uh, from the marketing, um, and from the company to go into these, uh, communities that have really bad pothole problems, um, and just really bad road work all in all and infrastructure. Um, and what they're doing is they're actually paying for, um, these, uh, potholes to get filled with asphalt and then they're putting branding over the top of it. And, uh, the, I think the brilliant part about it is, is it's not just Domino's come buy a pizza, right? There, one of the things they had was yes, we did, and it's literally just the Domino's logo um, with the Domino. <laughs> and I think it's brilliant because you go, you look it up after, and they actually set up an amazing website with really good UX, uh, really good CRO too. Um, they tie it to their product. They showcase uh, what the pizza looks like in a box in the back of a car, and you can toggle between their different road conditions. So they they bring it back to like we paved this out as a way to, you know, like showcase what our product can do, um, tying you into pizza. And at the very end, they have an order now CTA showcasing a pizza. So I just think it's like, all in all, you know, they're connecting themselves to the user base. They're connecting themselves to the communities and those local communities doing some good. Um, and they're also setting up a brilliant way for just brand recognition. Uh, and then even further making that multi-touch, ending it with a, with a really good UX experience and tying their product to the service they did. So I, that's just one of the most like out of box, brilliant marketing ideas I've seen in a, in a little while. I think. I mean, those are both amazing, and it just goes to show I'm I'm not uh, familiar with either of those. Although I'll say I'm not on TikTok, so maybe that's my <laughs> excuse for that one. Um, so that's all for this week, Ashley Jack. Thank you so much for your time. Great speaking with you, and um, we'll be in touch. Speak soon. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it, Dan.